you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We are making our way through this book, and we have reached the ninth chapter. After reading of God's covenant with David in chapter 7, and then David's victory in solidifying the kingdom in chapter 8, we now are treated to a display of mercy. And so chapter 9 is, I think, very helpful for us because it helps us to see the mercy that we are to show, and it helps us to see the mercy that we are shown. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table. Always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. 
Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that You would open up Your Word to us. For we need Your Spirit to attend upon our way, O Lord. We need Your Spirit to illuminate our eyes, to open our ears, to open our hearts, that Your Word may be much more than simply letters on a page, but that it would be indeed life, health, and peace to us. We pray, O Lord, that through Your Word we would know more who You are and what duty You require of us. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. Here we have the continuation of the story of King David. And the story of David is fascinating. He is one of the most beloved people in all of the Bible for a reason. And I think one of the reasons is because David is a model for us to follow. David is not perfect. But he shows us how a believer should live. But there is another thing that we must see in David's life, and especially here in chapter 9. David is also a type of Christ. The Lord shows us who Jesus is through the pictures and shadows of David. Both of these come through in chapter 9. David is on display to show us how to show mercy to others. And he shows us how we have received mercy from the Lord. And so I'd like us to explore these two things in our text this morning. First, we will see covenant mercy that we imitate. And then secondly, we will see covenant mercy that we receive. Covenant mercy we imitate, covenant mercy that we receive. Let's begin then by looking at the covenant mercy that we can imitate as we look at David. Our story starts in a familiar fashion. Just as in the beginning of chapter 7, we saw David resting after defeating his enemies. So, that is the case here at the beginning of chapter 9. And in chapter 7, David's thoughts during his time of rest and peace were led to the Lord. He thought about the Lord and what he could do for the Lord. Now, during this time of rest, David begins to think of his good friend, Jonathan. Now we might ask ourselves, why would David's thoughts return to Jonathan after so many years? It's been somewhere between 15 and 20 years since David was in the presence of Jonathan. Why now does he come to his mind? Well, we're not told in the text if there was a specific event or a specific memory that caused David's mind to go to Jonathan. Again, it was at least 15 or 20 years ago that David was in the presence of Jonathan and the two of them made a covenant together to be fast bound to each other in covenant love. Now maybe it's because now David thinks he's safe. 
that he began to think back to the time when he was in greatest danger. You remember the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 20. After David had killed Goliath, Jonathan became his fast friend. And then Saul went about trying to kill David, even trying to convince Jonathan that he should try to kill David. But instead, Jonathan warned David, and they made a covenant between them. Jonathan, for his part, promised to tell David if Saul was still bent on trying to take his life. And he asked David in return to show him steadfast love. Now this is a word that we will become more familiar with this morning. This word steadfast love that we see in 1 Samuel 20 is the same word that's used in chapter 9 of our text, verse 1. There it is translated kindness. But it is the same word. Jonathan acknowledged to David that he knew the Lord was going to make him king. And this was a great admission on Jonathan's part because Jonathan was not just an ordinary citizen of Israel. No, he was the crown prince. And by saying that the Lord would make David king, he was confessing that he would not be king. That rather than David serving him, he would serve David. But Jonathan was glad to do so because he loved David as he loved his own soul. And so the two men made a covenant, binding themselves together in love. We read this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning at verse 14. If I am still alive, Jonathan says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Same word, steadfast love. That I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so David makes a promise to Jonathan and his family. And this promise involves steadfast love, kindness. And the word for this in Hebrew is chesed. Chesed. This is an important word. It's often hard to translate. Here in chapter 9 we have kindness as a translation. In other places we have steadfast love. Or another way to translate it is mercy. The idea of this word is that it is love that sticks. It's not fickle. It doesn't go away. It is love that is bound up in covenant promises. It's something that the Lord gives to his people. And that's why it is called the steadfast love of the Lord and the kindness of God in our text this morning. David had made a promise. It didn't matter that that was 20 years ago. It didn't matter that times had changed, or that he could no longer gain any advantage from this covenant now that Jonathan was dead. No, David had made a promise of covenant love, of hesed, and he was going 
to keep his promise. I have to say that I think one of the great problems of our society is the forgetting of promises. We often see others around us ask, well, what's in it for me? If I do my part, what will I get? And it used to be that this kind of breaking of promises was only really found in business relationships. That someone would break a contract because they didn't see it as to their advantage and they didn't mind or they didn't give any thought to breaking the contract. There's even a legal theory from the turn of the century that says that if you are engaged in a contract with someone and if you can break that contract and get more profit by going with another contract, you should do so. And then what you do is you simply restore to the first business person what they've lost, and then everybody wins. Except, of course, your reputation, your word. But we've gone well beyond business breach. No. For decades, we have seen marriage be treated just as a mere contract. That it can be broken at any time, when it's to our advantage, when we think we will be better off. We break our vows. We break that covenant bond that keeps us together. But it's even sadder than that more recently. Not only is divorce rampant in our society, there are people who break their covenant bond to their children. They simply hand their children over. They say, we're done with them. We can't deal with them. We're not going to have them in our lives anymore. And this happens because they're at the end of their rope and they don't know what else to do. And they think the only solution is to give up, to forget their promise. If I can forget my promise, I can walk away. But you see, promises are meant to be kept. Covenant love or steadfast love is meant to stick us to our promises and to the ones we have promised to. You've probably known a couple like this. It happens more often than we would hope it would. Where a couple is married in youth and they live a wonderful life together and they have children and they raise them and they send them off to college and their children get married and they have children's children and then something happens one of the spouses becomes gravely ill becomes even in a coma unable to communicate unable to respond to love or to show love and yet the other spouse remembers that promise for better for worse in sickness, and in health. And so you have the sight of a man sitting next to the bed of his bride. And she can't speak, and she can't see, and she can't hear. And when someone says, why are you doing this? He says, this is what I signed up for. I keep my covenant promises. Covenant love sticks. Past promises affect present behavior. How do you view your promises? Are they made quickly and then forgotten quickly? 
True love is willing to bind itself with a promise, to be obligated so that others have the security of that love. One of the things that we see in our society is not just rampant breakup of marriages. It's no marriages at all. Couples don't get married. <coughs> and they will say things like, does a piece of paper make our love any greater? Does a formality make us love each other any more intensely? And the answer is, not only is that not the case, you're asking the wrong question. Binding yourself to another is not about the intensity of love. It's about the security. It's about letting another know that your love is there to stay. This is an important principle that our society is in danger of losing. And so we as believers must understand this. Your lives are full of covenant commitments. Commitments to your marriage. Commitments to your children. Commitments to your church. Commitments to your parents. David shows us that believers take these commitments seriously. And they strive to keep them. But David does more than just remember his promise. No. This is not just a sentimental looking back. No, David wants to take action to bring the promise about. And so he asks, is there anyone left to whom I can keep my promise? And specifically, you will remember in 1 Samuel 20 and in verse 15, Jonathan asked that David would show this steadfast love, not just to him, but to those who would come after him. And so they go and they find Ziba, who is the servant of Saul. Now David doesn't know if there are any descendants of Saul left. It's been a long time. And you'll remember that three of, four, three of Saul's four sons were killed in the great battle at Mount Gilboa. And then the fourth son, Ishbosheth, was murdered by hooligans who thought that they could get in David's good graces. And so he does not know if there is any survivor of the line of Saul. And it wouldn't have been surprising for there to have been none because Saul came under the wrath and curse of God for his sin. God told him he was going to take the kingdom away from Saul and that he would wipe out his line. But there is a son of Jonathan who has survived. And it's interesting because the most important characteristic that we are given about this son is that he is crippled. Over and over again, when we're told that he is the son of Jonathan or he is Mephibosheth, we are always reminded that he is crippled in both his feet, that he is weak. We're told in chapter 4 that Mephibosheth, after the battle of Mount Gilboa, with all the rest of Saul's family, fled the capital. They fled the Philistines. Now, those of you who are younger here know, or think back a few years, it is exceedingly difficult for a child of five to keep up with a running adult. And that's exactly what happened here. So you can see all of the family of Saul fleeing they're in great fear from the Philistines. And Mephibosheth is trying to keep up. You can almost picture him. 
his little legs are going about as fast as they possibly can, but they're only about a half or a third of the size of adult legs. And so he's falling further and further behind. And so what happens? A nurse comes to his rescue, a helper for the family. She scoops him up in her arms, and she then begins to flee with him. But in God's providence, in her haste, she drops him. He falls to the ground, and we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that that fall causes him to become crippled in both his feet. Now, that would have been disastrous at this time. There were no ADA-compliant ramps into buildings. There were no wheelchairs. There really weren't even crutches. And a man was made to fight, to go off to war, and to work the ground, to be out in the land. And so he can't do any of this anymore. He's helpless. He's hopeless. And so Mephibosheth is now dwelling about as far as you can get from the capital city at Jerusalem. He's dwelling, we're told, in Lodabar. And even the place where he lives is a Mephibosheth place. Because in Hebrew, Lodabar means no pasture. It's worthless land. That's where he lives, in the land of worthlessness. And he is across the River Jordan, far to the north, to orient you up by the Sea of Galilee, far from Jerusalem. And so David now sends for him. And you can imagine the scene. David's men come and they knock on the door. Who is it? We are emissaries from King David. Now Mephibosheth, if he hears this, has to think this is the end. The jig is up. I'm through. Because you see, the ancient practice of kings was to wipe out all of the family of a king that they had replaced. It was not enough just that the old king be dead. All his sons had to be dead. All his daughters had to be dead. There had to be no opportunity at all for someone to rise from that old line and compete. And this wasn't just what happened in foreign lands where God was unknown. No, we can read about King Baasha in 1 Kings 15 who wipes out the kingly line before him. Or even in the next chapter, 1 Kings 16, we read about Zimri doing the same thing. And we read about Jehu in 2 Kings 10 wiping out all of those who had gone before him. And so when Mephibosheth greets these messengers... He goes with them, but I'm sure it's with a heavy heart and a great deal of fear that he accompanies them. We see this in the meeting between Mephibosheth and David. In verses 6 through 8, Mephibosheth falls down and he submits to David. We see that in verse 6. And his response to David is to compare himself to a dead dog. But David is not thinking like an ordinary king. He's thinking of his promise. He's thinking of covenant love. And so see how David makes provision for Mephibosheth out of his hesed. Covenant love is practical. It's not just sentiment. David is going to bless 
Mephibosheth. And we see this in verse 7. The seventh verse forms the center of this chapter. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Do you see the three things that David gives to Mephibosheth? First, he gives him protection. He says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. Kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And then he gives Mephibosheth provision. He says, I will restore to you all the king's lands that have been lost. He gives him literally a king's ransom. He makes him a crown prince again. The wealth of this would have been staggering. But David goes even further. He says, not only will I protect you, and not only will I provide for you, I'm giving you a position with me. He says, you shall eat at my table. Always. Think about that. He will eat as one of the king's sons. When David comes and the meal is brought and his son Amnon and his son Absalom and his son Solomon and all of his sons who were mighty in war, mighty in battle, who followed after their father when they were there to eat, who would come through the door? But Mephibosheth, gimping along, lame in both his feet unable to really keep himself together, probably having to lean on someone. And he comes and he sits amongst royalty, and David's food is his food. And David's love is his love. That's what David brings to him. We see David even going beyond his promise to Jonathan. David's promise to Jonathan was that he would not cut off any of Jonathan's descendants. But David wants to go further than that. He wants to bless and he wants to honor Mephibosheth. He will care for him. He will protect him. Mephibosheth will never have to be afraid because David is for him and has bound himself to him. Think for a moment about the promises that you have made. Are you so eager to keep them that you go beyond the promises themselves? Think especially about those who are weaker than you are. Do you lift them up? Do you bless them? Do you seek out ways to show your love to them? David is a model here who shows us the way. Well, this is a good story. If there were nothing more to it than this, we would be blessed. It would be a good moral lesson for us, how we should live. But that is not the greatest thing. Nor is it the most important lesson for us from 2 Samuel 9. What we see now is covenant mercy that we have received. David is more than an example to us. As we see over and over again, he is a type of the great king, Jesus. The Lord raised up David as king to give us a glimpse of our true king. We saw this clearly in chapter 7 when God promised David that his son would reign on his throne forever and ever. And while we can 
see ourselves in David. We must see ourselves in Mephibosheth. What do we know about Mephibosheth? Well, we know he's unworthy. He's a cripple. He's useless. He can't fight. He can't work. Over and over again, that's how he's mentioned. It's the most significant thing about him. He's hiding as far away as he can get from the limelight, hoping he could just pass out his days unnoticed. He has nothing that he could offer David. He can't bargain with the king who has everything. But more than that, he is the enemy. Well, David puts it this way. He says, Mephibosheth is the wrong stuff. David should not be helping him. David should be wiping him out. Mephibosheth represents the ones who fought against David, who tried to kill him, Saul and his uncle, Ishbosheth. Now, what does this make you think of? Again, this story is here for a reason. It's more than moral guidance. It's a picture of how the Lord Jesus Christ treats us. David has no business loving Mephibosheth. And the Lord has no business loving us. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. A reminder to us that we didn't side up to Jesus. We didn't say, Jesus, I know what I can bring to you and I can help you. I've been following you. I'm on your side. Would you please help me out? No, we came as enemies, rebels, sinners, as the ones who put Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is when God loved us. We were weak, unable, could not help ourselves, unable to offer anything of worth to the Lord. And worse than that, we deserved wrath. Do you know that the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary? That's all you bring to the table. So why? Why does God look down on you, sinner, and give you mercy? It's covenant love. It's hesed. It's steadfast love. God has bound himself to love with an oath. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus praying so fervently that he sweated great drops of blood. And he prayed to the Father and asked the Father, Father, is there any way that this cup could pass away from me? And the Father says, No, my son, it can't. And Jesus says, Father, why can't it pass from me? Why can we not have this cup pass? And the Father answers, because we made a promise. A promise to redeem a people. I promised to send you, and you promised to complete the work of redemption and salvation. That 
is the love of Jesus Christ. What this should show you is that you don't have to clean yourself up for Jesus. You are a lame, weak enemy. But you are also the recipient of covenant mercy. You know the song we sing, a debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy, I sing. There is no reason that God should show you mercy, but He does. All you have to do is receive it from the hand of Jesus Christ. Well, there's one final thing for us to think about. Not only are we unworthy recipients, but we receive the greatest of blessings. David did not say to Mephibosheth, go back home, here's some unflavored, nasty-tasting oatmeal for you to have on the way home. Have you ever ate oatmeal that didn't have apple cinnamon in it? Or didn't have blueberries in it? It's just plain old oatmeal. It's like eating paste. No. You can survive on oatmeal, can't you? Of course you can. It's healthy. But David didn't do that to Mephibosheth. No. David told Mephibosheth that he would eat at the table like one of the king's sons. Always. And David restored Mephibosheth's royal inheritance. That's what verse 7 is saying. And this is a reflection of what the Lord does for us. When the Lord saves you by grace, He does so much more than spare you from His wrath. He brings you into His presence. He makes you His child. You come to His table. You are provided for. You are blessed. Think about how the scripture describes this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's covenant mercy is never alone. It comes with a shower of blessings. The Lord wants us to see this in the blessings that are given to Mephibosheth. Four times it is mentioned that he ate at the king's table. In verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, and again in verse 13. This is the reminder we need when we go through difficulties. We are not poor. We are not lost. We are found by Jesus. Just as Mephibosheth was blessed for Jonathan's sake, so those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are blessed for Jesus' sake. Like much of the Old Testament, this chapter gives us a lesson on how to live. We see how David remembers and keeps his promise. And we are drawn to do likewise. But more importantly, this chapter, like the rest of the Old Testament, gives us a picture of the true king, the ever-faithful one, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus always keeps His covenant promises. And when you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. Come, sit at His table. It does not matter that you're lame or that you have rebelled against Him. He is ready to receive you, to shower His love upon you. He is the great giver of mercy. Let's pray.